Good morning. My name is Scott. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. My privilege to be with you. Uh, this is one of those passages, I love this passage. It's one of those passages that on a surface reading is a little bit uh, like, it's like, you know, uh, Timothy's a great guy. I hope to send him to you. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. And it's like Epaphroditus, also a good guy. Uh, did not go well when he came to visit me, but he's fine and he's coming back. And it's like, preach that, right? Um, this is the beauty of the scriptures, though, is that um, God's word is living and active, and there's always this, this unbelievably rich depth to it. And so this is a passage that, um, I've said this before, is that Philippians is one of my absolute favorite letters in the New Testament um, book of the Bible, just in general. And uh, really understanding what Paul is doing here under the surface uh, has made this a really precious passage to me personally. And so um, hang with me here. One of the things that the scriptures argue that I just think is true, it's like one of those things that's just like true. I don't think that it's necessarily a uniquely biblical way of articulating uh, human identity, but, but I, I do think that it's there just throughout the scriptures, is the idea that who we are is largely shaped for good or for ill by who we choose to imitate. That that's a huge factor in who you become as a human being. And the scriptures say that this is built into the, just the mechanism of what it means to be human. You've heard us in various uh, discipleship courses, in various sermon series, talk about the reality that human beings, according to the scriptures, the most important thing to understand about us is that we are made in the image of God in terms of what a human being is. And that means that we were made to represent God in the world, and that we were made to represent God by being and doing who he would be and what he would do if he were physically present here. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. That's what it means, according to the scriptures, to be human. You were made to image God. In other words, you were made to imitate God, and that the, the scripture's articulation of What's both right and wrong in the human story is largely based around that concept and the human choice to not imitate God, but instead to cast our eyes downward and to choose all the wrong things to imitate. And that, um, I've heard it said that one of the most devastating passages in the entire New Testament is, uh, where is it? I think it's in Galatians 5, where it says that Adam was made in the image of God but his son was made in the image of Adam. In other words, Adam is made in the image of God, but then this is language that we use about kids, right? You are the spitting image of your parent, right? What, I don't know what spitting means, um, but the idea of being, being in the image of a parent is, is you look like them, you act like them, you have their mannerisms. And so insofar as Adam was made to imitate God, the fact that his son will inevitably imitate him after Adam's poor choice to rebel against God means that this thing is going to get worse before it gets better, the human story, namely, because we are imitating broken images. Does that make sense? Okay. What the scriptures claim is that when Christ comes, he is perfectly in the image of God. The, Paul elsewhere in, in the letter to the Colossians says, he's the exact imprint of divinity, Jesus. In other words, he perfectly 
imitates the Father. This is why you find Jesus saying, when, uh, particularly throughout the Gospel of John, you find Jesus saying constantly, if you have seen me, you have seen who? The Father. Exactly. It's his constant. In other words, I am perfectly imaging who God is meant to be. And then where this seems to go is that because of what Christ has come and done, that there is, this is the moment where it gets better, though it has gotten worse over time. Because now we have the opportunity to be remade in the image of one who has actually shown us what it looks like to be human, what it looks like to be made in the image of God. This is why the great task of being a follower of Jesus is discipleship. Because discipleship, you, you've heard us say this again many, many times if you've been around our church at all, discipleship is the process by which we become more like Jesus, right? In other words, the process by which we learn to imitate Jesus. What Paul has just told us is that um, it is God, not only is Jesus an example for us, but it is God, this is in the last passage we looked at last Sunday, that is God who works in us both to will and to energize that process. In other words, this isn't just something that we're left to our own devices to do, to imitate God, but that God is changing us from the inside out. And what's inside of us is producing Christ-likeness. In other words, what's inside of us is assisting us in that imitation. To maybe land that outside of the scriptures is just think about, think about your, your own life. When, uh, when I was working with college students and we would come upon this passage is I would often have them start by saying, if you were to introduce yourself to someone, wouldn't it be interesting to do that around the question of Describe who you are according to the three or four people you've most imitated in your life. Tell me who you are and tell me it by who, who you've imitated. Does that make sense? It's a fascinating, and at first blush, you're kind of like, wait, what? And then when you think about it, you're like, wait, I can do that. I can do that. I'm, you know, whatever. I'm funny like my parent, you know, like I'm, you know, uh, I love to read like my older sister or whatever, right? And, and you begin to realize like, oh yeah, I have been shaped. A lot of my identity is around who I've chosen to imitate. For, <laughs> for me, two things always come to mind is every single year when I was growing up. So I have a birthday that's just a couple days before Halloween and never a big fan of Halloween. Um, not for like theological reasons, just because I do never liked it. I am now in a grown adult, and I still don't like masks and all that clowns. They're like a whole other thing for me. But as a kid whose birthday was a couple days before Halloween, I was always kind of forced to have a dress-up party. Um, and because uh, everyone else loved it, right? They're like, oh, well, it's so close. Let's just do it. So every year, I would dress up as the same exact thing. I would dress up not as a football player, though if you saw me, that's what you would guess. I would dress up as a specific football player, and that football player was Jerry Rice. And um, any Jerry Rice fans in the room? Thank you, back there. I see three of you. You guys are just being nice. I know you guys. Um, Jerry Rice, greatest football player ever, commonly agreed. Uh, best wide receiver. I had this guy down. 
I, I wore the same gloves as him. Um, I, I ran like him. Um, not quite as the rate, but I tried to perfect sort of the motion that he would run with. I would put eye black under my eyes, and then I would go to a door, and I would say trick or treat, and they would say, oh, look at you, you're a football player, and I would be incensed. And I would be like, I am not just any football player. I am Jerry Rice, right? Um, because that was my guy. That's who I imitated, right? And, and so many of the things that I did, I wanted, I read everything about him, right? But you probably have some version of that, right? Growing up, there was someone um, that you just thought was the greatest, and you imitated them. The older that you get, you find that imitation and who you've chosen to imitate um, becomes far less your choice. You realize, like, oh, I'm becoming my whoever, right? Like, normally it's a parent, right? Um, and it becomes far more consequential, right? Like, you may notice I didn't actually get drafted yesterday. Um, like, here I am in another profession. In fact, I never put on a pair of pads and play football ever, so so much for imitating Jerry Rice. But um, there are ways in which my character was shaped by those who I was surrounded by growing up, both for good and for ill, um, that are very consequential at this stage of life. And uh, if you're a parent, I think that you, this is going somewhere, by the way. Um, this is not like my musing for the day, like, now let's get to the text. Um, if you're a parent, or, or if you're around kids at all, maybe you're a teacher, um, I've, I've also heard this said, and experienced this for myself, is normally the very worst things that will come out of your mouth as a parent are things that you have said to, you have had said to you. And you say these things and you go, oh, right? Where did that come? Well, it came from the fact of, of right, an example, a model um, that you had. Also, the best things, the wins that you say, are probably things that either you've had said to you or things that you've overheard others saying, right? Like very few of us are parents are, very few of us as parents are creative enough <laughs> to like come up with all of that stuff. Like when I'm at the end of my rope, what I'm going to say is, right, like just stuff comes out and normally you go, oh my God. And a lot of times it's stuff you, you promised yourself you weren't gonna say, right? And now here you are saying, I'm just done with you and I wish you would just leave. And you're like, oh gosh, right? Now for some of you, you know that that's even more consequential um, because the things that you've, that you've heard, the things that have had, you've had said to you, um, are, are massively painful, right? We are who we are largely by who we choose to imitate. So this, I, I think that what the entire letter to the Philippians in some ways is answering the question of, well, well is there hope, right? Is there hope when you look around and you go, oh boy, um, who am I? Okay, what in the world does that have to do with two guys and an apparent like travel diary? Um, well, let's look at this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. Okay, Timothy. Timothy is Paul's protege. Uh, we know this from the rest of the New Testament quite clearly. Timothy is his guy, younger guy. This is someone that 
Paul mentors over many years. And his description of him here is meant to kind of smooth the way for when he sends Timothy to them. Where's Paul at this point? He's in jail. Good. You've been listening. That's good, right? He's in prison. So he realizes, I'm not going to be able to be physically present with you. So I'm going to send the next best thing, which is my protege. I'm going to send Timothy. And this is his little commendation of him, right? We still do this in our culture moment. This is why, um, you know, we have recommendation letters read. It's like, okay, before I meet this person, like, tell me a little bit about them. And so this is Paul's very mini paragraph long little recommendation of Timothy. What he says is he hopes to send them, uh, send him to them. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Okay, those of you who have been around a little bit, do you remember a time where we talked about not serving one's own interests, but serving the interests of others, serving the interests, in fact, of Jesus himself. Where is he getting that from? Anybody remember? You can look in your Bible. It's in the Bible. I'll give you that clue. Verse 4. Good. Let's read verse 4 of chapter 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your interests, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. As a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. Any language around service? Again, this is not the word for serve. This is actually the word for, for a fellow slave. He has served with me in the gospel. Hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. I trust in the Lord. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, right? Okay, so there's language being picked up here, right? That's my point. In his description of Timothy, there's language being picked up in terms of what he was just talking about. Let's keep going. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for all of you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God has mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and this is big, honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The reason why I'm reading through the whole passage is really the most important thing is in verse 29 here, where Paul says, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Honor such men. Again, if you have been with us, this is why, you know, you got to read these letters as a whole, and hopefully you're seeing that this is why we even preach through things, is because stuff builds upon itself. Paul is writing this to Philippi, which is a Roman colony, which is obsessed with the pursuit of what? Honor. This is great. Look at you guys. Um, I'm like genuinely encouraged, but I'm not just acting. It's great. No, I was like, oh boy, what if people are like, uh, honor, we've never talked about that. Okay, honor, right? The pursuit of honor, the race, the quest for honor, that this is what social, you know, 
where your place in society was based on, all of this stuff. And what Paul has consistently been doing up until this point in the letter is he's been putting that on his head, saying the things that make you an honorable person in this culture, in this Roman culture, are not the things that make you honorable in the sight of the only eyes that matter, which are God's. That in the sight of Rome, to be, to be a servant, to be a slave, is the lowest, most degrading, most dishonorable place to be. In the economy of God, in the culture of God, in the kingdom of God. To be a servant, to be a slave. Especially when that is, um, when that is something that needs to be set aside like Jesus did. When it's a choice to love and serve others. It's an honorable thing. It's what God sees and honors, and it's in fact why Jesus himself is given the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, is because he put himself in that place. He identified with the slave and the servant. Honor such men. He says that, right, he he tells this little story about Epaphroditus. So here's what's going on here, okay? Paul is in prison somewhere scholars disagree very vehemently. I don't understand why. It's such a huge argument, but he's either in Rome or he's in Ephesus. Who knows? He's in jail. We know that much. Timothy is his guy. The way that prison worked in those days is you are not fed by the prison system. Instead, you are fed by whoever is in close proximity who can consistently bring you food and clothing and books. This is why a lot of Paul's letters end with, hey, bring my books. Hey, bring my clothes. Hey, thank you for your service to me because you're at basically the will of whoever's proximate. So, he, so Timothy seems to have stayed in the area wherever Paul is in prison. He's saying, look, I desperately want to send Timothy to you, but I've got to figure out what's about to happen with me. This is likely him kind of hinting at things are about to go to trial. I'm going to find out, am I going to be in prison for a long time or not? So I need to keep Timothy close while that's happening. Once I know how all of that's going to go, he's, I'm, I'm sending him to you because of who he is, how much of a blessing he'll be. In the meantime... What the church at Philippi has chosen to do is they've sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, likely to help Timothy in his assistance to Paul. On the way, Epaphroditus gets sick, almost to the point of death. It's literally the language that's used here, to to the point of death. The obvious thing to do is you are headed somewhere away from your hometown to help someone who's in prison. You're going to be a help. Now you're sick. What's the obvious thing to do? You turn around and go home, right? And you say, oh, it didn't work out, right? Um, Instead, he keeps going, puts his life at risk, is literally the, the language that's put. He gambles with his life is one of the phrases that Paul uses here to get to Paul and to serve him. Now you can imagine... That Epaphroditus probably, when he was at his worst, he's at, you know, urgent care in ancient Rome or whatever, and he sends a little letter back and he says, hey, look, I'm sick. I'm kind of trying to decide if I can keep going or not. By the time he gets Paul, he realizes that letter has gotten to Philippi, and the Philippians are probably like, oh, no, what happened to Epaphroditus? This is why there's all this anxiety. Paul's like, I'm anxious about it. Epaphroditus is anxious about it, right? He posted something online and then didn't follow up on it, and everybody's like, what's the deal with Epaphroditus? And so he says, look, Epaphroditus, God had mercy on him. He's okay. He'll be coming back to you. And then he says, look, he almost died to do what God had asked him to do. Honor such men. I see honor in that. I am surrounded by a culture 
that, that defines honor in all of these other ways, through strength and might and by what your last name is, by how much money you have, by how much um, you're able to dominate other people, how many uh, people bow to you. And here's Epaphroditus and what he's done in pursuing the work of God, even to the point of death, I see honor in that. And I want you to honor that. I want you to look at that and see something cosmic, cosmically beautiful in that, admirable. Here's a key word, I think, imitatable in that. Okay, I've used this phrase purposely, um, that Epaphroditus was obedient to the point of death. Where have we heard that language before? Yeah, where? It's right here. It's the Christ hymn. It's the beating heart of the letter is this Christ hymn, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that we talked about, 5 through 12, um, 11. Right? It's there in that. Jesus made himself a servant. Look at it with me you don't believe me. Who those in the form of God, I'm starting at verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now you have Epaphroditus, who, who nearly died in the translation in verse 30, but the language there is literally was obedient or was unto death, did the work of Christ unto death, to the point of death, risking his life to complete what is lacking. Okay, all this might sound really technical. What is he doing here? What he is saying is, um, I'll quote my, my, my good buddy John Scalambro. Many of you know John Scalambro. Uh, John Scalambro was a long time, he and Deanna were long time members of our church, and then uh, we sent John a couple of years ago um, into full-time vocational ministry. He's now the lead pastor down in church in Tom's River. He is preaching Philippians at the same time, which for me personally, whether you care or not, has been a blast. Um, and so we talk about all these passages. And he, the way that he put it is he said, I think that what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's putting the cookies on the lowest shelf for them. Because ultimately what he's saying is, is he's saying, look, you are who you imitate. And who you are most supposed to imitate is who? Christ, exactly. You're most supposed to imitate Jesus. That might feel a little far away, okay? The next example that he gives them, actually, if, if you read the text, is himself. At the end of, of last week's passage, he says uh, in 2.17, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In other words, imitate me. I'm going to be joyful whether this is for my harm or not, as long as your faith thrives. Be like me. Paul says, well, okay, some of you have never met me. Um, you're about to meet Timothy. Let me tell you about him and the ways in which he embodies the example of Christ. And so he says, picking up language that he's just, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. He says, look, I'm sending Timothy to you because there's no one like him that I have and I want you to honor, right? He's saying, honor such men. And he's including in that Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's saying, I'm sending Timothy to you as another example. You're gonna get to experience what it's like to be in the presence of someone 
who does not put his own interests first, but puts the interests of others and the interests of Christ first. And then he says, all right, I don't know when that's going to happen. So let's talk about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, as far as we can tell, is the only time that he's mentioned in the New Testament. Epaphroditus is just a regular guy. He doesn't show up in Paul, anywhere else in Paul's list of here are all of you know, the other pastors and missionaries and you know, all of these kind of big names in, in the early church. He shows up nowhere else. Seems like, and think about what this guy did. He was like, they were like, hey, we need to send some food and money and clothes to, um, yet yeah, all the way to Rome. Uh, anybody have time for that? Anybody not have much going on that could actually do this? And for whatever reason, this guy Epaphroditus is like, I could do it. And they're like, oh, you know, you can imagine that all the busy people there are like, oh, thank goodness, like Epaphroditus is willing. Right? He's just a regular guy. He's, he's not, he's, he's not the, the pastor of this church, right? They probably wouldn't have sent the pastor of this church. He's one of them. I love that his name is Epaphroditus. Um, take off the EP. What's his name? Ep Aphroditus, right? He's named after a Greek god. He's almost certainly been raised in a family from another religion. Side point, uh, this is a whole sermon for another day. One of the most beautiful things about the early Christian movement is you didn't have to change your name when you became a Christian. They're like, yeah, keep the name. That's fine. You don't have to be embarrassed by the fact that you grew up um, in another culture, in another religion. We love you exactly as you are. Pretty cool, right? The people who get new names get new names as nicknames from Jesus. You're thinking of like, yeah, but what about Peter? It's like, yeah, God gave him a nickname. Like, you're, you're hard as a rock. Um, I don't think it was a compliment, by the way. But anyway, that's a side point. Okay. So Epaphroditus, right, uh, regular guy, goes and does this. Paul says, if you have eyes to see what this guy just did, you saw the Christ him. You saw this crazy theology that's at the heart of this letter. You saw the, this deeply layered poem that we talked about here on Resurrection Sunday. You saw it lived out. You saw it lived out in your boy. You know Epaphroditus. You know this dude, right? Like, he was the guy that you're all like, oh, thank goodness, like he went so that we don't have to go. If you have eyes to see, you saw a Christ-like moment from one of your own. Do you see it enough to honor it? To see the beauty in it? To say, I want to be like Epaphroditus. See how he's putting the cookies lower? Be like Jesus. Okay, that might be. Be like Paul. Okay, you've only met me a couple. Be like Timothy. He's coming. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Let's talk about Epaphroditus. Let's talk about your guy. Let's talk about someone that you've lived life with. He did the Jesus thing. And he did it in seemingly mundane circumstances, right? All he did was get sick and keep going. That's what he did. And he says, Christ-likeness. Don't you see it? With Timothy, with Timothy he says, uh, they all seek their own interests. By the way, I don't know who that is. Paul's going in on someone. Do you see that in verse 21? He's like, for they all, he's like, ooh, who's the they, right? Like all the Christians in like the local church there. I don't know who he means, but he says, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. Two things here is he says Timothy is the type of person who is not primarily concerned with his own interests. 
And if you have eyes to see it, there's Christ-likeness bursting forth in that. There's an example of Jesus. There's a tangible, livable example of Jesus. It strikes me that it seems like what's going on here is that Timothy has structured his life, has made major choices about how he will position himself, where, where he will move to, right? Like he's moved to be proximate to Paul in prison. That sets him up to have a life that is not primarily about his own interests. I think this is a word for us. Because I think sometimes when we think about some, and primarily I'm talking to followers of Jesus right now. When, when we think about like, oh, I want to be more like Jesus. I think sometimes we think about that in this overly spontaneous way. Like, as I go about my normal life, I hope that I can do it in a way that actually loves and serves other people, which is great, and you should try and do that, and you should keep your eyes open and be attentive to God working in you to will and to work by his spirit, moments where you can enter into that. But I think what we forget, and this is partially what we're trying to get at in our discipleship courses, is it's really hard for those spontaneous moments of faithfulness to come up in a life that you have pre-structured to be primarily about your own interests. When your day is primarily about you getting what you need and all of these things, yeah, you might have opportunities that spring up. Whereas some of you have actually pre-chosen to set yourself up to love and serve and be constantly about the needs of others. And I would say we have a lot to learn from you. Right? Here I'm thinking about you know, those who have made intentional choices about the relationships that you're in. And all of your relationships aren't just about those who serve you. You've allowed yourself to be in relationships where you know you're going to have to give a little bit. I'm thinking about people who have, have chosen to live in different ways, right? To actually live, um, maybe you've chosen to live with roommates or, or maybe you live alone, but you've chosen to live uh, amongst a community of friends, and you've had certain practices that say, hey, we're going to love and serve one another, not just live siloed existences. I'm thinking of those who are married, those who have had kids, right? Like, that's a choice. What you declare by making those life choices is, in part, amongst many other things, but yeah, I can't be all about me. Thinking about those of you who have chosen careers that by definition our careers where you love and serve others. My mind in our church, just because we have such a disproportionate number of you, goes to teachers and nurses, right? We have a lot of that in our church. You know what the Bible says to people like you? Bible doesn't say like, hey, make sure you're Christ-like. You know what it says? It says, don't grow weary in well-doing. I think those verses are, are for, for that. Which is some of you have structured your life so that your choices to be about other people are not spontaneous. It's just what you do. And the Bible says, don't grow weary in that. Do you know that it counts, right? Like, I think that sometimes we think that moments of Christ-likeness that just spring about in a moment, and I, I just found myself so selfless in that moment, are like the ones that really count. It's like, tell me more. Wow, you really rose to that occasion. Where some of you are like, I've done that for like 17 years, right? Like, every day I wake up and life is not really about me. I think that that's what... Paul, Paul is saying, look at that kind of example and say, what, have I so structured my life? Right? Like We talk a lot here about structuring our lives to make sure that there's actually space to meet with God, to have relationship with God. We talk about uh, this whole concept of rule of life, but there's, there's even kind of a, a meta structure to our lives 
that, that I would really encourage you, and I think it's partially what Paul's getting at by highlighting these people, is think, think about more of the kind of meta choices. That How is your life structured? If someone were to look at your schedule daily, weekly, monthly, would they see intentional moments where you put yourself in positions to love and serve the interests of others primarily and not just your own? He also says, you know his proven worth. I love that. His proven worth. This is this beautiful word that we don't have an equivalent for in English, which is a character forged in in difficulty. That's what proven worth is here. It's a character that has been forged not in happy, clappy, comfortable circumstances, but in difficulty. Likely here what he's talking about is that Timothy, any of the persecution that Paul has gone through, Timothy is standing right there with him. So they've stood in front of legal authorities who have threatened all kinds of things. They've received beatings. They've they've been in, likely at some point, Timothy is in prison with Paul. He's saying this is not a cheaply won character that Timothy has. This is one that comes from the relationship that they have, which is as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. As a son with a father, right? Especially in those times, um, the image that's that's primarily being gotten at here is the one of apprenticeship, right? Like whatever whatever your father's trade was in that time was likely the trade that you were going to adopt. And he says, "This is what Timothy has done: is he's followed me that closely. He's been right at my side. And so when Timothy comes to you and you see this man full of joy, full of other-centeredness, it's not because his life has been cake. It's it, the exact opposite. It's because that character has been forged. And so this is what we need to set our eyes on. Who around you has proven worth? Who around you has really been through it? We kind of do this naturally. At least I hope we do. You have people in your life where you just go, to, to the rest of the world, they're happy, they're joyful, their faith is strong, and everybody else thinks it's because everything's just been hunky-dory for them their whole lives. But if you know them, you know, no, this is proven worth. This is hard-won faithfulness. These are deep wells of joy that have been cultivated by the difficulty that life has thrown at them. He's saying, imitate that. I tend to think that there's also something a little bit deeper going on, not I, but a lot of scholars tend to think, I'm not including myself among scholars, um, but tend to think there's also this thing going on. He, is he, says, he says, look, when you look at Timothy, what you're looking at is you're looking at a son that has served well with his father. And because he so encapsulates what I'm trying to call you to, I want to, what does he want to do with Timothy? He, he wants to send him to them. So you have a father and a son And one is sent in order to embody all that is good and right about the one doing the sending. Who does that sound like? Right? Jesus. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what? Emptied himself. Came. Was sent by the Father. Was obedient to what the Father asked of him. That Paul again is working a, a level deeper under the surface saying, and when you see Timothy and his years of faithful imitating of me, 
And he's in your midst. And, and I wonder if even part of what Paul is getting at here is when you meet Timothy, he's going to look and sound a little familiar to you. Because he's going to look and sound a lot like me. He says, honor such men. Because what he's imitated of me, I would call you then to imitate. Thought it necessary to send to Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, and minister to my need. He's just, he's just racking up the, remember, regular guy, got sick, kept going. Paul is like, my brother forever. This is my guy. This is my dude, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. I love that imagery. This word for fellow soldier here, again, is, is, is a little bit more robust than the original language. It's really talking about someone that you've gone to battle with and likely received scars with. The image here is really soldiers coming back from war and, and one who would say, you are my fellow soldier from here forward. Paul says he's been in it with me, right? This is why so often the people we imitate are the people who are in it with us at some point. He says, that's what Epaphroditus was. I'm not producing that bass in case you're curious. What's the point? First of all, we have to keep in mind the overall teaching of this book. Because if, if all that life came down to was, who have you imitated? Um, how much has that harmed you? How much has that helped you? Now imitate Jesus or imitate people who are like Jesus, you, you, would, be, you would be without hope. Right? Here, here's how I've put it before. Uh, simple illustration, right? Like, um, if I... <laughs> if I uh, cut out uh, a little like picture of some sort, and then I handed it to Melly and handed her uh, a piece of paper and had her do that same cutout, and then we handed it along all the way through these rows, all the way back to, to Jen Jazz back there, right? Hi, Jen. Um, adjusting her eye. Um, would that go well? We're talking about cutting out. Right? Like some of you are really good at this. Right? Like my mom was a kindergarten teacher. She like crushed. She could just boom, boom, boom with the scissors. Whereas some of us were like, oh no, right? But you'd have to hand it along, right? And the next person would go. Okay. The biblical story is that's what it means to be human. Is we were made, right? You are Adam <laughs> in this case. Um, Adam and Eve will go. Um, uh, right? You were made in the image of God. And then that image went wrong, somehow, some way. Maybe drastically so, maybe not so drastically so. And yet, what was handed along was no longer the image, but a broken image. And then that was imitated all the way back. Whatever Jen ends up with, all the way back there, right? Whatever wild image that she ends up with, what she needs is what? She needs the original. You know what else she's going to need, though, after she's done her thing? She's going to need the original template. She's going to need something else, though. She's going to need a new piece of paper. She's going to need a totally new start. Because if all that I gave her was, ooh, like, I don't know what that is. By that point, like, like, if you're with me, when you're trying to get cutting right, like, it ends up being, like, this big. And I said, here's the template. Probably whatever scraps she had thrown out, she'd be like, I'm going to need those back because, oof, right? But if I presented her and I said, okay, here's a new piece of paper. 
Here's the original template. Now, now Now you got something. Our hope is not merely in the fact that one who has come, who is our perfect example. Our hope is that he has come and he's actually able to make us new creations. He's actually able to take us at the very core of who we are And he is able to will and to work something completely new and fresh in us. This is the hope of the gospel. Is that you, if you are in Christ, to quote Paul elsewhere, behold, you are a new sheet of paper. That's a a paraphrase, right? You're, You're a new creation. You're something brand new. This is the new work that God is doing. Now look. We are, it, the anal- all analogies break down at some point, right? Because we all still got stuff. You have stuff that comes out of your mouth. You have behaviors that you've imitated your whole life. But do you know how hopeful it is that Paul, or really the Spirit of God through Paul, has the audacity to say, yeah, but you've been brought into a new family. And part of that goal in that new family is to show you images of Christ close up in space, in, in real time, in real proximity to you such that you might become what you already are. You have a new creation. You have a new sheet of paper. Now progressively, over time, become more like Jesus. And do it not by gritting your teeth alone somewhere and saying, okay, what does it mean to be like Jesus? And how can I do that? Instead, Paul's saying, look around. Who has God put proximate to you already? And in what ways, if you have eyes to see, in what ways is there Christ-likeness bursting around you? One of the very best phrases that Paul uses in any of his letters is he says, imitate me, massive caveat, imitate me as I. And the, as I imitate Christ, that's what he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's saying, insofar as, you know what that fancy, what is that, a preposition? You know what that means? It means only imitate the stuff that you see Jesus in. That's freeing too, right? Can I just just pause and say, parents, this is why it's so important that we apologize to our kids. What do I mean? Our kids will imitate us. They will. They'll do the great stuff, and they'll do the not-so-great stuff. If we don't apologize for the not-so-great stuff, They don't know which is which. You know how I know that? Because we didn't know which was which. A lot of us just took it wholesale and said, I guess this is what it means to be an adult. I guess this is what it means to be a parent. I guess this is what it means to be a spouse. Because we never had a parent courageous enough to say, that thing that I just did, or this thing that I consistently do, it's not okay. And I want better for you. And I'm sorry that that's true of me. And it's something mommy's working on. It's something daddy's working on. But the last thing that I would want is for you to think that that's something that has to be true of you. Because they will, right? Like this is the weirdest part <laughs> about being a parent. His stuff comes out of them, right? Like you never know what it's going to be and mannerisms come out of them. And you're like, But if we're consistently showing them, modeling, doing the courageous work to say, go ahead and imitate me, right? There's nothing more honoring as a parent. It's a beautiful thing to be imitated as a parent, as an auntie, right? Like whatever role you play in kids' lives as a teacher. But you got to be bold enough to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
But then you got to be bold enough to, to, right? Like, let's talk to the whole church. I think so many times we are so, we are so much more bashful about the work of God in our lives than even the Spirit of God himself is, right? Like, we want to be more modest and humble than he wants us to be. This is what I mean. Okay, uh, those of you who are a little bit further along in life, hey, what do you feel like you did right in your career? What do you feel like faithfulness looks like? What, what did you do? And sometimes what we can get is, oh, nothing, right? Because you're modest. And you don't want to be like, well, sit down. Let me give you my, like, 10, you want to crush it as a Christian rules, right? But we, so many of us swing to the other way, and we say, I didn't do any of it right. And then some of us, in stages earlier than that, are going, just give me anything. Just give me any. I'm flapping around. I have no, right? Some of you came to faith later in life, and you have no examples, nothing of what faithfulness looks like. And it's not helpful for another Christian when you say, hey, what do you do to have a relationship with God? Oh, well, I'm not very good at that, so you don't really want to ask. No, tell them. Tell them about three times a month I pray. Tell them that, because you know what it's going to do? It's going to encourage them. And then you can say, and that's not really the ideal, and I really am working on that, because I know that those three times I'm just, I'm better for it. Um, well, what do you do in those three times? Well, I only do it three times. Tell them what you do. They might be more disciplined than you. You might learn from them when they actually figure out some rhythm. But we got to be willing to share this stuff, right? Those of you who are working with the teens now, we can be very quick to be like, oh, yeah, I was a mess as a teenager. But you made it. You made it, right? Like you're mentoring kids now. So don't be bashful with what you're willing to tell them to say, hey, I got a lot wrong. And yeah, let me tell you about that. But here are some things that I got right, whatever it is, right? I chose my friends well. I actually cared about school, and I'm so glad that I didn't, didn't do the cool kid thing. Whatever it is, right? Like, we have to be willing. I think that there's a humility on, like, both ends of that statement. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think that we tend to <clears throat> one or the other. We need, we need the boldness to hold them together. I'm willing to be imitatable. I'm willing to have others imitate me. But I'm humble enough to say, hey, that wasn't the Jesus stuff, right? And I wonder what your tendency is. Because all of what this, and why it's become so precious to me, is the best chance that we have to grow in Christ-likeness, according to many texts like this in the New Testament, is the actual local community of believers who are living their faith here and now. Yeah, the saints of old are great, right? Like, yeah, whoever your people are, the reformers, the Puritans, whatever, they're great. They didn't live in 21st century central New Jersey. This is one of the most interesting things about Christian faith, is it has a flexibility from culture to culture such that faithfulness does not look the same in every single time and place. Here's what we get, a template of faithfulness in Jesus. What, what is general faithfulness? Selflessness, not putting your interests before the interests of others. Um, holiness, choosing against the things that the culture says are okay, that God says are not okay, right? Like we, we have some general patterns of what faithfulness, but that's going to land differently here. Just think about this. than it did in like whatever, 12th century Britain or whatever, right? Like that looks different. And so we need one another. And so I'm so grateful that in this church, we have examples of faithfulness. So many times, ask those two back there, Pastor Minoj and Bina. You did something right with these kids. And they've shared, reluctantly, 
over the years, but they've shared. Hey, here are some things, maybe, to be thinking about. I kind of want to keep going, but I feel like you'll be mortified, right? I've learned how to have hard conversations from that man back there, Coach Chris, head Coach Chris back there. How to go in, how to not be bashful, how to say, look, we're going to talk about this, because you're going to talk about it somewhere, I'd rather you talk about it with me. I've learned what it looks like to just serve where you're asked from Michelle Shaw, who's sitting here. She said to me, I don't know, six months ago, I want to be helpful. Didn't put any parameters on that. Said I'm willing to serve. Now she's serving as our director of global partnerships and doing it joyfully. I'm just looking and literally everywhere that I look, I see an example. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to own this. I want you to think about someone, preferably in this room, a little pastoral challenge that you find imitatable, and I want you to share that with them, okay? Could be the person sitting next to you. Could be someone that you might need to stand up and go tell. Here's your phrase, ready? I'm going to give you options if this is terrifying to you. I've learned my lesson. This is 21st century central New Jersey, so I know that everyone will not do this. I want you to just tell someone what I find most worthy of imitating in you is. Okay? You can do this right now. You can send a text. You can wait for a time where you know that, but I would really encourage you to do this sooner rather than later. I'm going to give us three or four minutes of incredibly awkward silence. Just want you to think of, for some of you, can I say this? For some of you, this should be the easiest thing that I've ever asked you to do because you're sitting next to someone right now who is your primary example of Christ-likeness, just tell them that. A lot of times we assume. A lot of times we assume. These people who I spend most of the, they know what I appreciate most about them and think is most Christ-like in them. Do they? Do you know what they think? Because if you don't know what they think, then they don't know what you think. When you start to do this stuff. I sat in that lobby two weeks ago on a Saturday morning with, with many of our leaders, and we started our time with appreciations, is what I appreciate about you. And we had our own stuff uh, that, that we share with them, but then we opened it up to the room. Hey, does anybody have anything? And all of a sudden, it got really emotional, <laughs> like surprisingly so, because we are starved for appreciation. And sometimes the best way for this dynamic, imitation, beginning to happen across our community is when appreciation of that, when it gets named. That's where that boldness comes in to say, okay, this is something people see in me. And maybe I can name that for someone else and then they get bold to say, yeah, the next time someone asks, that's probably the thing I'm going to share for them. Okay? So I'm going to give you three minutes. What I find most imitatable in you is, you can put this in a note, you can put it in the text right now, you can get up and go tell the person. You can turn to the person next to you and tell them. But if we don't land this stuff, right? Like, I know that I'm breaking a written, an unwritten, good grief, it's not a written rule, if anything. For, for, um, I'm breaking an unwritten rule. Like, I'm not supposed to do anything with the teaching on Sunday, right? Like, um, no, you are, and there's nothing wrong with doing it now. I'm going to stop talking. Three or four minutes, go.
One more minute. All right. Um, if you didn't have anything said to you, I would just encourage you um, to, uh, to, to make that move toward other people. Because um, that can be a hard thing in moments like this, too. Like, why didn't anyone say anything to me? Um, right? This is where we need to be willing to courageously say, hey, this is part of Christlikeness, is to say, I'll pursue. Right? I'll go first um, in these things. Because uh, that can be part of what's scary about appreciation in a community is you constantly feel like, yeah, but no one's, no one's coming to me. Um, I just kind of want to acknowledge that and, and offer just a little additional challenge. Um, we want to honor what was just spoken in this room, right? And here's what's beautiful, is when we honor these things in one another, just like Paul here, um, we're not ultimately pointing to ourselves, right, to, to the one being honored. We're pointing to the one behind that one, within that one, who is making a messed up, right, piece of paper imitatable. That's remarkable. None of us are worthy of imitation. Christ makes us worthy, right? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, when someone says you're imitatable, man, that means that there's something new and fresh going on in you. And so we honor him by doing this, right? This is about Jesus. This isn't about us. Uh, it's why we come to this table is because we need to continually be reformed, reshaped um, by him through forgiveness, uh, through repentance, by saying I was wrong this week. I was unimitatable <laughs> this week to the people around me. And we receive forgiveness and then the grace um, to be made new, to start yet again, to start over for the thousandth time 